I mean, if anybody tells you that they enjoy fundraising, they're lying to you or they're masochistic or both. Yeah. Is it not fun because it takes you away from your core business, which is leasing office? Or is it just the hundreds of meetings you have to have? Or like, why isn't it fun? I think both of those, right? So it takes you away from your day. Like when you start a company, you're like, great, I want to go fix commercial real estate leasing. And you're not like, you know what I really want to do is spend a third of my life fundraising, which yeah. is what it winds up being. <laughs> now, granted, like, uh, was it the ends justify the means, right? So you have to now spend a third of your life fundraising. So you do that. But fundraising, you, you hear no a lot. And there's no way that if you aren't a sociopath, that that doesn't impact you. Yeah. Um, even if you know it's <laughs> part of the game. You know, it's just like dating. Like, I didn't marry the first girl I went on a date with. And I was told no a whole bunch of times, both by her and by other women before that. Um, <laughs> but it worked out. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort. I have Jonathan Wasserstrom with me today, who is the co-founder and CEO of Squarefoot.com which is a venture-backed company that is changing the way that people find and lease office space. We have an awesome conversation about the early days of the idea behind Squarefoot, how he built the company and raised capital, what Squarefoot does, his take on where office is right now, especially as it relates to the New York City and greater New York area. We talk about where office in general is headed and some of the unique things that are uh, starting to emerge. And we also talk about kind of his second job, which is uh, one of the leading syndicates and rolling funds on AngelList. Jonathan's invested in over 50 startups and has done a remarkable job there. So thank you for continuing to join me and enjoy. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I'm really excited about today. Let's just start out with a little bit about who you are and your story growing up and what led you to where you are today. A long list of bad decisions that got, <laughs> got me into real estate. <laughs> um, grew up in Houston, uh, Atlanta for college, DC for a handful of years, uh, most of the time uh, at JLL doing capital markets work, which was 2007 to 2010 uh, when I was leaving my job. My first job out of college was consulting. Um, and I was giving my two weeks to my boss and said, that's cool. What are you going to do? And I said, real estate. And he said, have you not looked at the paper recently? <laughs> so uh, anyway, I spent a few years at JLL doing capital markets work, learned a ton, uh, had a bunch of fun. Uh, plan was always to go back to business school, uh, which I did kind of summer of 2010, which brought me to New York. And uh, shortly after that start, I got a call from a buddy of mine. Uh, who was looking for space for his last company. And he had gone online to try and do that. Thought you could find space online. You can't. My phone rings, Jonathan, how the hell do you do this? And and nine years later, square foot. I mean, nine minutes later, but then nine years later, here we are still at square foot. I love it. Real quick, what did uh, 2007 to like, what did that look like starting at kind of the height of things and going through the the downturn? Um, I just, uh, yeah. what, it, what was I can it like? Only- I can only tell you about the second part because unfortunately, I, got, I started so when I was 2007. It was August of 2007. So 
the knife was already uh, kind of teetering on the edge, if not yeah, falling. I was like three or four guys started uh, the same week I did in different groups. Uh, and we were like kind of the last in and then a couple of them, unfortunately, first out by kind of beginning part of eight, 08. So, yeah, it was a mess. Uh, and look, we were, do- we were doing capital markets work at the time. And the joke, which wasn't really that funny, but kind of everybody has their gallows humors. The leasing guys down the hall were still doing stuff. Uh, but capital markets completely seized up. What uh, what were you working on? Were you working on a certain asset type? Was it office? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So it was actually interesting at the time now, um, table stakes. But uh, JLL had a group called the International Capital Group. And they essentially had uh, kind of senior MDs in each of the regions. And they each had a junior. So I was the junior. And what was novel, I mean, shit, most of 20 years ago now, which was there's a whole bunch of uh, these big trophy assets that were trading uh, that were cross-border nature. So you had Japanese people buying in uh, America, America buying in London, London buying in Dubai. And, yeah, we inarticulately called it, uh, we looked at the capital flow chart, we called it the, what are they called? The ballistic missiles? Yeah. It looked just all the capital flows, just like all these lines going across the country, uh, going across the world. But anyway, so uh, we were, uh, for me, it was awesome because I really liked DC, but my goal was never live in DC full time. And uh, as you know, real estate is a very local business. Uh, so for me, I got to be an inch deep and a mile wide in, in a really good respect. So you know, I knew slightly more than to be annoying about DC real estate. But at the time, I could also talk semi-intelligently about all the, the major uh, capital cities. Because every Monday morning, or Monday morning for us, which was 5.30 in the morning, our time, but kind of as we roll around the world, normal times for everybody else, we got on our call with the team and we talked about what we were seeing in each of the markets. Uh, who was looking to buy where, who was looking to sell where. So it was awesome. Uh, I really, I learned a tremendous amount. Do you remember any moments during that period where you were like, holy shit, this is going to be really bad? <laughs> well, so one of, uh, we had a guy in, in the Middle East named Fadi. And in the middle of it, I don't know, this was probably, kind of probably end of eight, early nine, I don't know. Uh, but if you picked up the paper there and everywhere, the world is just like falling apart, right? And so Fadi would get on the call and say, you know, I have clients that want to buy uh, in New York for 50 cents on the dollar. And my boss, who had his way with words, kind of said, Fadi, if the Empire State Building's for sale for 50 cents on the dollar, it's not making it to your desk. I'm buying it myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's kind of, you had kind of people at making those asks and you, you just had a, a complete seizure. So no deals were getting done because that bid ask was just way too far apart unless, you know, I, I got to learn at the time what an intercreditor agreement was. Um, and, you know, people trying to figure out where the fulcrum piece on the capital stack was. And that's where you want to try and buy into it uh, or where you didn't want to be just below. So, yeah, it was a mess. Okay. Two stupid questions. What's the fulcrum piece of the capital stack? Shit. It was 12 years since I talked about that. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> if you have, because also like we were dealing with these like big trophy assets, which, we're not like when you buy like uh, you know a 200 unit multifamily thing. You have debt. You, have, you know you have your equity piece, and then you have a mortgage on it. Some of these big like you know half a billion dollar assets have more complicated capital structures than that, where you have preferred equity. You can have different uh, tranches of of debt. You have like the senior mortgage, and then you can have yeah other tranches of debt. And then by the way, most of those debt pieces were securitized. So how the hell do you even figure out how to un, unwind that? 
Um, so the fulcrum piece would be kind of if you have a building, we'll use that same half a billion dollar deal. Um, and we believe that 30% of the value is wiped off. You then figure out, okay, that's 150 million bucks. So who who is the who owns the building at a 350 million dollar valuation? Right, right, because it's now their problem or their lucky day, depending on what type of uh, person that was. Interesting. And then the intercreditor agreements, basically just figuring out who who's holding the the guarantee. Like who who do you go after? Who's the the person that's going to be foreclosing? Yeah, yeah. Part of that, and also on the other side, if you want to be on the opportunistic side, people who are looking to buy at the time or trying to figure out how, because you want to buy as low and high. Uh, I'm trying to think the right word phrase at the right point in the capital stack, right? So, uh, so that you can be in that position. So you you could be an aggressive purchaser and say, "Great, I'm going to go buy this mez piece at cents on the dollar." Mm-hmm. Um, and that will be when the asset gets marked to market, however it needs to get marked to market, I'll get the keys. And I'm, I want to own the keys as opposed to whichever poor fellow was in it at the time who was not in it, thought it was super protected because just like Bitcoin and Tesla, everything always goes up. Yeah, <laughs> they will never come back down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is so interesting. When I hear international buying and like these huge capital stacks with all these different layers and CMBS notes, and then I just think of attorney's fees and the complication to put these together. I'm always thinking like, I wish I could see the legal bills that are that come out of transactions like this. They, they probably would make me vomit. Yeah. All right, so then you go and you move forward and your buddy can't find office space and he comes to you and says, I can't find office space and a light bulb goes off in your head. What happened from from that day? What was what what happened from there until Square Foot actually launched? I was in business school at the time. So the summer between first and second year business school, which would have been May of August of 2011, uh, we hung out in my parents' attic. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I guess proverbially whiteboarding, but I don't think we had a whiteboard. I, like started thinking, okay, what should we be building here? What makes sense? What doesn't make sense? And we decided there was like enough meat on the bone to try and do something. So we had a website built kind of that fall, launched it that or end of 11, beginning of 12, and started getting some landlords paying us to list, which was cool. And I don't say we were off to the races, but that's kind of how we started. And then by the time graduation came, we had made enough progress that it made sense to say, great, well, you know, the downside to me trying this for a little longer is not a very big downside. Um, so let's try. And we just kept working at it. By beginning of 13, we got into an accelerator uh, here in New York called uh, Entrepreneur's Roundtable Accelerator, which was awesome. You know, I'm a real estate guy. Uh, I didn't know the first thing uh, about building a company, much less a tech company. Yeah. Uh, ERA was was great around that. You know, raised a little capital coming out of that in 13, middle of 13, um, and then kind of yeah, I've been building since since before then. Did you have a co-founder from the get go? Yeah, we had two guys actually. One was that kind of proverbial buddy who called me with the problem. And the third guy was a buddy of his from uh, college uh, who's, who worked in real estate previously as well. And they were with the business until, I guess be four years ago now, uh, in March, part ways, uh, March of 2017. Got it. And so you just kind of bootstrapped it out of your parents' uh, attic until you got to that accelerator and then raised some real money? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we're working on my parents' attic, office costs are low. <laughs> Look, I was in business school, so I didn't have income and I wasn't planning on having income. Um, and then, yeah, we started raising some capital and taking very low salaries. I mean, shit, I had, uh, I didn't have, I didn't live by myself until I was 34, I guess. I had like six roommates here in New York after business school. And I lived by myself for six months and then I moved in with my now wife. So I love it. You, uh, you had a new category, WFA, work from attic instead of work from home. And I actually have that question written down. Did you, was squarefoot.com available when you went to buy it or did that, was that something you had to pay up for? It seems like a really great domain name. Yeah. So we were really inspired by our friends at the Facebook and we started out as the Squarefoot, which we were able to get for like 200 bucks. And there was a squatter on squarefoot.com. So it was uh, not for sale or for sale, but for a lot more than we were willing to pay. And then, you know, maybe two years ago, three years ago, we bought it um, for a lot less than everybody would have guessed. But then we also did an installment plans. But yeah, we became Squarefoot. We dropped the the because we were able to get the uh, domain. And I've, I've really never asked this on the, on a, another episode, but how did you go about buying it? Did you have to hire a broker or you just reach out to this guy directly? So we used a friend or a friend or a friend. I'm trying to remember who it was, but somebody who like wasn't directly affiliated with us because mm-hmm. um, we didn't want somebody like hold us over a barrel. There are brokers that do it, but uh, we are a very frugal organization. We weren't going to use a broker um, and, and we were able to get it this other way uh, for a number that we were uh, happy with. And especially like, you know, we paid for it over maybe a two year period. All right. So, uh, what is Square Foot? Like, what's your take on the business and why were you, how are y'all doing things differently? Yeah. So, Square Foot helps uh, companies solve their real estate needs. We bring transparency to a market that's historically had none and technology to a process that's historically had none. Um, we do that with squarefoot.com, which is uh, essentially like Zillow for office space, right? When, that first pain point that we had talked about, right? When you try and go see what's available, you can't, right? We in the industry, although not at square foot, but in the industry, you have CoStar. Uh, what does a prospective tenant have, right? The same way Zillow exists for apartments and houses, we start with that. We pretty quickly saw that in addition to access to inventory, everybody also wants and needs help with the transaction. So we have brokers. Um, and we enable our brokers uh, with tech, which makes their lives better. Uh, we enable... Our clients use tech too. There's a, an app for that as much as it sounds like a 2011 Verizon commercial. <laughs> uh, and everybody's life uh, is improved by tech throughout the process. Centralizes everything in like a dashboard and a mobile app. So when you're going through the leasing process, uh, instead of like a paper chase, uh, it all lives there. And you know, for uh, clients from very, very large organizations that talk about bringing up the, the web app uh, at a board meeting with their board, and saying, this is what we're looking at. This is what we like. This is what we want to do. So really kind of bringing all that. And then uh, last but not least, which was pretty exciting a year ago, I think will be even more exciting a year from now, uh, is we're pretty bullish on the whole flexible space market. Mm-hmm. We bought Pivot Desk, uh, I guess, a little more than two years ago. Pivot Desk, you can think of like an Airbnb for office space. I have 5,000 square feet. I'm not using 10 of those desks. You can put them on Pivot Desk. Uh, and kind of monetize in the short term. And we have a program called Flex by Square Foot uh, where we partner with landlords and clients to help bring these flexibility to the transaction as well. So it's kind of like a sublease, except they're not having to sign anything long-term. It can be, you know, a couple days or a couple weeks. 
Yeah. Um, well, it's usually, kind of, I guess we'll call it midterm. Like we wouldn't do anything for less than a year. We were originally going to be doing those on balance sheet, but then COVID happened. Uh, so now we're doing those on management agreements, which is a lot better for everybody. But two years ago, nobody wanted to do management agreements. So we weren't doing management agreements. What's a manage, like what, what's a management agreement? Uh, got it. Yeah. So, um, there's the landlord or the tenant. And historically what happened, we would show a tenant a space and they'd say, this is perfect, but I want two years. The landlord says, that's great. We do five-year deals here. And we heard that enough times and we got tired of telling everybody no. So we said, why don't we try and solve this problem? And the way that we were going to do that was we say, great, we'll sign the five-year term. We know that the tenant's happy to pay a premium for shorter term. So we were going to do that. And we were in kind of uh, an enviable, enviable position because of the platform to know who's looking for what where. So we know where demand is and how much they're all willing to pay, uh, which means we're able to underwrite those deals pretty appropriately. Uh, also, because we have that platform, we're in front of all that inbound demand so that uh, we didn't lose much sleep if we, quote, bought right, knowing that in month 25, that we'd be able to backfill it. Right. Um, and that's was actually a decent part of our fundraising story when we went out to the market last year and it resonated well. And we were going to do a whole bunch of that this year. Then COVID happened and I'm not signing leases because nobody knows where the market is and I'm not about to be the one guessing. Because for us, it was always, it was never a core business for us. It was, hey, we have clients who are uh, looking for solutions that they can't find. And when we hear that enough, we say, great, we build a solution for that. So that's where Flex came in. Um, and then now we partner with landlords uh, to that on a management basis where management, meaning uh, the original scenario, we were going to be signing those leases. Now we don't sign those leases, um, but we can still help get the space turnkey ready so that a client can move in for a two-year term. And we just we just won't sign. We're not going to be involved in that transaction. At, um, like We're not going to be holding that lease anymore. So is the landlord just now willing to take a two-year lease? Like what's right the now, what's the man? Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. So now landlords are a lot more flexible. I mean, still we don't have many transactions happening. Not we at Square Foot, but like in the market is still in an interesting place right now. But yeah, landlords, especially like the average mom and pop landlord, or even like you know, I own ten buildings. I'm not very institutional. I'm not in the operations business. I'm in the I buy a building and then I sign a bunch of five and ten year leases, and then I worry about them in years four and nine respectively. I don't want to deal with furniture. I don't want to deal with internet. And I don't want to deal with in and out. So we can come in and solve all of those things um, programmatically for a landlord. Got it. Um, and we had already built everything to be able to do that because originally we were going to do that and then sign the lease. So we were all geared up to do that. And it actually wasn't much of a pivot's the wrong word here, but wasn't much of a change of direction to just say, great, we're not going to be in the principal position, uh, which make, makes the economics look different too, right? higher, sorry, lower risk, lower return, which is fine. It works out better for everybody, actually. It's the way it should be done. Yeah. So if I own like a 10-story building, I might go to you and say, hey, I'll sign a management agreement with you for floor nine, and y'all are more than welcome to kind of lease this floor however you see fit for tenants that need shorter-term leases or more flexible outcomes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I would still tell you as the landlord to continue marketing it as you normally would. And then whoever finds the tenant first does the deal. Got it. And you still have full uh, visibility into the tenants I bring in. So like you don't want a brothel in your building. You still won't get the brothel in your building. Um, Who doesn't want a brothel in their building? 
It's amazing. Uh, well, in New York City, Trinity is a very Trinity Church, which is like a sect or sorry, a, a portion of the Catholic Church usually frowns upon it. And they own they own a ton of buildings. That makes sense. <laughs> so who's your do you have like a target customer? Is it is it is it smaller tenants looking for flexible space or do you deal with people looking for 500,000 square foot leases? Not 500,000, but kind of zero to 50 is our bread and butter. We've done deals for subsidiaries of GE. um, And we've also done um, deals for like, you know, Powers and Wallstrom Associates, like the local accounting firm. You know, the thing that we've always talked about is if you think about who uses Zillow, it's both like the two dudes out of college looking for their two bedroom apartment downtown. And it's also the family buying a $10 million uh, mansion. Um, and we see the same thing here for the most part, you know, I, Goldman Sachs is not looking for the next headquarters space on square foot, but there are companies that you would know and love who are looking for 10, 20, 30,000 square feet all day on square foot. Uh, and then also the kind of two person and 10 person firms. And are they, are they, are those, is that target market typically in the market looking to lease within like a year of their search? Is it within three months of their search or kind of everything in between? Yeah, good question. Um, everything in between. It scales up based on the size. Like somebody who's looking for 20,000 square feet is usually not like, holy shit, I think I need space tomorrow. So usually have kind of like a six or 12 month cycle there. But then like, you know, you and I decide to go get venture funding and take powers and losses from to be a bigger business. And now we're looking for space on Tuesday. And, and we have solutions up and down the board. So I'm a tenant and then I've, I've, I'm in the market. I've gone to square foot. Y'all have uh, captured my contact information, what I'm looking for. And then that feeds directly into your broker network who's able to contact them immediately and start working with them to nail down a space. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, let's talk a little bit about kind of what you're seeing right now. Y'all are only in New York City right now or y'all in more markets so the platform is live everywhere. The only place where we uh, have brokers who wear our shirts today are, is New York City. We'll be launching uh, somewhere between two and three new markets this quarter. Okay. Um, but we already get demand. All, we've done deals in most of the top 20, 30 markets already. So you just have partnerships in those markets? Yeah. Yeah. And then what? Because our, our plan is always to, not always, but there was a strategic decision that we made a couple of years ago. Do you want to go broad or deep? Um, and we said, let's go deep and then we'll go broad. And so New York city for us has always been kind of this, uh, laboratory. We get to try new products, new services here, actually just figuring out the business, quite frankly. Uh, like what's the right way to follow up with clients. What's like, what's the right touch points, email, phone call, text, chat, whatever. And then once you get that well oiled machine going, then you start going and you could just kind of drop that into new markets, um, which we had planned on doing last year, which because of COVID got delayed a little bit and we'll be doing out in the next coming weeks. Well, New York gets a lot of the headlines. Can you just speak a little bit? What's the office environment like there right now? Is it as bad as it seems? Is it better than it seems? Like, how do you think about it? Uh, I don't read enough news to know what the headlines say, but um, it's, Look, I we live in the suburbs now, and every time I go into the city, I go in the city two or three times a week for work. Each time I'm on the train, there's more people. But when uh, I would go to the city, uh, like we just had our first kid in May, and we did some doctor's appointments in the city, like March, April, it was a ghost town. Like you could drive 
like through like up and down the island of Manhattan and like streets were empty and streets aren't empty now. Um, but it's nothing like, you know, we're having this conversation a year from now and the streets are packed. So it's, I'm sure it's not as bad as people are saying, especially like the news's job is to be sensational. So everybody clicks and says, holy shit, New York's exploded. But it's also not, I mean, I'd be lying if I said, look, 2020 was not our best year in business. For sure. So what's the office activity like? Is it starting to pick back up? Was it on pause for March and through yeah. May or how do you see the market? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So actually both, it is starting to pick up. Uh, again, not like what we saw this time last year, but a far cry from where we were in March. Kind of we'll talk about it like in stages, like March, whatever, 15th, everybody just got out of the pool, right? Nobody knew what was happening. Um, everybody kind of hibernated for the right reasons, which is like nobody knew what we were dealing with. Uh, so all the searches that were in process got on hold. A couple that were like at the finish line got over it, but almost everybody said, yeah, we got to figure out what's happening. Things were pretty quiet for the spring into early summer. And then over the summer, people started talking about, our clients started talking about, great, how do we get back to the office, right? Like Labor Day was always this kind of line in the sand. We want to, we told people they could go wherever they wanted to for the summer. Um, but now we want to start getting people back in the office. So we started doing nothing we charged for, but like kind of consulting on like back to work strategies. Uh, how do you do that safely? And now people both are doing that and now talking about, great, I need to figure out how do we go sign a new lease because either our lease was up or because we're growing or because we have too much space and we need to contract. We actually closed by number of deals in Q4. I mean, it was up a lot from Q3, up a lot from Q2, but again, not where Q4 of 2019 was. Right. Are you seeing any data? Are, are, are people moving to New York, like first time arriving to New York? Or is it a lot of just folks just moving around the city or expanding or uh, getting smaller? Uh, it's both. I, know, I mean, look, people who would have been setting up satellite offices are still setting up satellite offices. I don't think, I mean, I don't think New York's going anywhere. Sorry, I'll, I'll go a step further. I know that New York's not going anywhere. I know that in the middle of a pandemic, if I'm a 27-year-old, kid, I have no reason to be paying $3,000 a month to not be able to go to the bar till 3 a.m. So I'm going home. Um, I'm doing something other than paying $3,000 a month. By the way, I don't have to go to the office. So like, why am I living in my shoebox? Uh, as soon as that passes, the same 20... I don't remember how old I said I was at the time, but that same person's coming right back to East Village. Yeah, yeah. Take me through the journey a little bit of raising capital for this business. Uh, you've raised quite a bit and what it's like to work with VCs. It sucks. The first part sucks. Raising capital sucks. Working with VCs is fine. Um, is is good. It, they, it, you get capital, you get advice, um, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, raising and also like, look, we were doing this before. I think it was our buddies at PropTech at, at MetaProp started calling PropTech PropTech. But I mean, Zach Aaron's was one of our angel investors before MetaProp existed. Like PropTech wasn't a word when we were doing this, which meant when we were going to VCs talking about doing this thing in commercial real estate, they're like, dude, what are you talking about? And because if you think about the average VC, especially is not struggle with the office space search. VCs get emails from brokers all day saying, hey, I'd love to help you, which is not altruistic. It's a broker trying to get in with that VC because they want to help their portfolio companies. So it's a problem that the VCs haven't really lived. Um, and historically, I mean, going back to like, we were having these conversations in 2012, Real estate as an asset class wasn't something that VCs were spending much time in. 
I mean, sure, you had like LoopNet, which was venture back in the 90s. Zillow, obviously, on the residential side. I mean, surely RealPage was already around there, but like it's a pretty short list. That's changed a ton in the last eight years, which has been uh, fun both for us as Square Foot and then now with my like nights and weekends hobby. Which we're going to get into that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was not easy. Uh, 2012, call it, we did our first institutional round coming out of that accelerator, quote, institutional being, you know, angel round. We raised like $430,000, which at the time was a ton. Uh, it was like the right size for an angel round at the time too. By the way, that took us till the end of 14 when we raised a million and a half bucks from uh, you know, a VC. Um, and then we've done that two or three times since then. And it's never fun. Uh, I mean, if anybody tells you that they enjoy fundraising, they're lying to you or they're masochistic or both. Yeah. Is it not fun because it takes you away from your core business, which is leasing office? Or is it just the hundreds of meetings you have to have? Or like, why isn't it fun? Both of those, right? So it takes you away from your day. Like when you start a company, you're like, great, I want to go fix commercial real estate leasing. And you're not like, you know what I really want to do is spend a third of my life fundraising, which yeah. is what it winds up being. <laughs> uh, now, granted, like, uh, what is it? The ends justify the means, right? So you have to now spend a third of your life fundraising. So you do that. But fundraising, you, you hear no a lot. And there's no way that if you aren't a sociopath, that that doesn't impact you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even if you know it's part of the game. You know, it's just like dating. Like, I didn't marry the first girl I went on a date with. And I was told no a whole bunch of times, both by her and by other women before that. Um, <laughs> but it worked out. <laughs> Um, oh, I love it. Hey, guess what? Ha- the sociopath. Guess what happened today? I got told by I got told no by 10 VCs. Uh, it was great. It was, it was so awesome. You guys got to try this, man. I'm like hanging out with my business school buddies and they're like, they have real jobs. They don't have six roommates. And they're like, oh, what'd you do? And I was like, yeah, I just got rejected like six times. It was awesome. How like critical is it that when you have that meeting that you think is going to be the VC or you think it's going well to kind of keep that momentum. And how many times did you feel like that was happening? And then it, it ended in a no. Um, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. I mean, all of them. I mean, I think I'm super charming. So I think all the meetings go great until you get the email that said, uh, we'll be rooting from you from the sidelines or whatever VCs like to say, let's just be friends. I hope I'm wrong. Prove me wrong. And, and you've raised how many rounds now? Uh, like four. Okay. So you've had your fair share of meetings. Yeah. How many VCs are there in the country that would actually, uh, you might know that none, is there hundreds of potential VCs for your firm or is it 50 or 20? I mean, by now, I mean, you probably have 10 prop tech specific VCs, which is amazing to think about. And every, not every firm, but majority of the other firms will look at it now. So yeah, they're clearly a hundred. I mean, I'm sure for when we did our Series B last year, I'm sure we talked to a hundred firms. Yep. I mean, including both a hundred people, both because we also always we do pretty well raising from uh, real estate executives. So I'm sure we talked to a hundred people, including both kind of those real estate execs as well as uh, the firms we did our B last year. Pivoting back just a little bit more, just on office. Um, like, what's your thought of office going forward? Uh, you you mentioned buying uh, Pivot Desk and. What's what's the market saying? Like, how is Office maybe going to be different, and how's it going to be the same? 
And that's a fun question. So look, I don't think remote's the future, at least how a lot of people are talking about remote. If you want to talk about you know, the ironic thing, you want to talk about remote being you have some people who don't work at HQ. We've had an office in Belfast for three or four years. And we have I don't know, now five or six, seven people there. Um, that's kind of fluctuated up to like 10. Now it's about five or six, seven. Guess where they work? In an office. So it's remote, but they're not in their pajamas. I mean, now they are because UK is on lockdown. So the notion of like companies like, to be competitive should be looking for talent anywhere. So that makes you remote. I don't believe that most talent wants to work on their couch, which means you need offices. And what that office looks like might change, right? Because if you actually start having more people not in HQ than in HQ, do you have like a bunch of like WeWorks or do you have, I think you'll start having um, close, I guess we're investing in it now too, this company called HQ2, actually WeWork guys who are doing, I'm going to butcher this so badly and they're going to kill me, but like we'll call it like near, near site co-working. So like I'm in the suburbs and they'll build a retail location in like the down downtown. There's like two blocks of downtown in the town I'm in. And there's a place so I can leave my house, but not go all the way to the city. Um, and I think you'll see a bunch of that. I couldn't agree with you more, but it's happening in an office. For sure. Yeah. I, this, and by the way, the people who were already working out of Starbucks will continue to work out of Starbucks. Like, that's always been an option. And by the way, that's why part of WeWork was a really good business. All of WeWork was a really good business on the office side. Uh, that co-working thing was like a very real need. And people were very happy to pay 500 bucks a month to not work in a Starbucks. And that's not going to change. I don't expect you to have an answer to this, but it's just something that I just thought about. You don't think there's a world where there's like Airbnb for the home office. So I would lease a bedroom out in my house to somebody that's going to show up every day and just use it as an office. So... There's nothing too dumb to ask, or not dumb at all. But there, I've seen at least two companies that do that. Already. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, it, it makes sense because I, I think it's all the same thing, especially like in a dense market where, especially for like the freelancer community, I might not want to go to WeWork. There might not be a WeWork in my part of town because I've, I'm in a residential part of town. But the guy down the block has an extra three bedrooms that he's not using. Um, and he rents them out. I don't know if they're daily, weekly, monthly, whatever. And that's my office. It's like, Hey, I'm going to work all day. My house is going to be vacant all day. You will just, you just lease my you know, office while I'm at work and you got to be out yeah. by five. Yeah. Or maybe they're there too. I don't know. One of the reasons why offices I don't think are going anywhere is I think people like seeing and being around people. Yep. Like when I was in college, when I was in business school, like, you know, you went to study a lot of the time was the library because you don't want to just sit in your dorm room all day. For sure. I'm convinced if, I mean, not everybody, this is a nuanced statement, I'm not casting a blanket, but if you genuinely love working from home, I think there's something to be said that you might just not like where you work, period. People that love their companies and love where they work, like more and more I'm finding that they are craving being back in the office. Yeah, I mean, whatever I say is gonna be biased, but yes. Yeah, I mean, imagine (laughs) being a 22-year-old kid that gets out of college and needs mentorship and needs to learn business lingo and how meetings happen and how deals work. And you're like, yep, you're going to be sitting in your bedroom for the next couple of years. And we're going to do all that through Zoom. Like it just does not work. And separate from that, like after I, when I was living in DC, I lived in a six bedroom house with buddies from college. It's separate from the fact that like 
they weren't going to mentor me. I don't think I could imagine a much less conducive place to try and work for 60 hours a week than like at our beer pong table. <laughs> and the the uh, Zoom happy hour, company happy hours are the worst. And look, and, and I don't disagree, but like the technology around that will get better. Yep. And it still won't be as good as 10 people in the conference room hanging out having a beer or, an or, or a salty snack afterward. How do you find new customers? They come to us, man. Like the power do, of the internet. Yep. Do y'all do, I, I guess, just through SEO and, and ads yeah. and things like that? I bet this is always not fun to do the live demos, but I bet if we Google Dallas office space right now, we're on the first page. I will do it right now just to confirm for all of our listeners. Dallas office space. And I'm doing it here too. I wonder what we got. We got work suite, city feet. D don't look at the paid ones. Oh, yeah. Oh, there it is. Yep, right there. It's the first one that's not paid. Maybe maybe the third yeah. one. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. But that's for a market that we don't play much in. And yep. when we play in a market, Google, New York, I mean, Google like Chelsea office space. Okay. Chelsea office space. And you are? You should be number one, both paid and organic, I would bet. Yep. Actually, might not pay a number one spot, but we will show up paid and we will be number one organic. Love it. So what's the goal to go deep and then go wide and continue to the mission is to be the, the best place that tenants zero to 50,000 feet find office space? Yeah, like growing companies struggle um, as it relates to finding, transacting, occupying real estate. And we're going to we will continue solving all of those pain points for them. New products, new services, and then taking our show on the road and doing that in new markets. And are the brokers that you're hiring, are they typically coming from a big shop like CBRE or JLL? Or are you, are you training people from the ground up? Yeah, both. Um, historically, actually, we only did the training thing. We were like, I don't think we were wrong in doing this. I think what we're doing now makes more sense, which is obviously why we're doing it now. But uh, we always said like the hard part is getting the deal, not closing the deal. Mm -hmm. And that is true, but you still want somebody who's been around the block before uh, closing the deal. So we started just hiring really junior people. And then we had guys like a year out of college that were like running around town with 10,000 square foot clients. We said, you know how we'd probably close more of those deals is if we put somebody with 15 years of experience on that. So uh, we've actually made a push starting middle of 19 and then a bunch last year hiring those kind of 10 to 40 year execs um not age but like years in the business uh we've been pretty successful with that here in new york and then uh as we talk about launching these new markets it's actually on the back of hiring a broker or brokerage uh, or a team uh to help us plant that flag um, and we're not talking to kids just two years out of college right that. And your your pitch to somebody that's a successful uh, broker already is we can provide you more volume and more deals or or why would I leave CBRE to go over there? Yeah, the one line I use, uh, if I can only use one line, is do you want to be part of the future or part of the past? Um, especially if we talk to somebody who's like about our age, plus or minus five or 10 years, somebody wants to be in the business for a bunch longer and they know that um, I won't negative sell any of the big firms or any the small firms, but like, they're doing stuff the same way when I was there 15 years ago. And the clients aren't, by the way. Yep. Um, but the firms are. So this gives them opportunity to help 
be a part of that and help build that and have a front row seat with that. We'll also give you some leads. We'll also give you tech tools that make your life better and the client's life life better. But if it comes down to like one bumper sticker, it's part of the future, part of the past. Can you speak to some of the tech tools, maybe one or two that you provide your brokers that give them better weapons to go to war with? Yeah. So it's both from a tech perspective and also from a service perspective, uh, service line perspective. Like we have Pivot Desk, nobody else does. We have Flex by Square Foot, nobody else does. Because all you care about ultimately as a broker is how do I close more business? So either give me more business to close or help me win more business. And we do both those things. And then from a tech tool perspective, you know, there's a mobile app, there's a desktop app, and they all talk to each other and you talk to your clients through that. Um, and it's just a much more seamless experience than like you run a report in some database that everybody knows. Uh, and then you have to go talk to the marketing team about putting a, a, a book together. And then that book gets printed out. And then you're walking around town with that piece of paper in your hand and your clients walk around town with a piece of paper in your hand and everybody's taking notes and some people are taking pictures and how do you kind of centralize all of that? And by the way, let's say your client's here, but her partner's in San Francisco. How does she share all that? Well, the answer is all that happens with square foot and none of that happens anywhere else. I love it. If you are a team or you're a broker in one of these markets, they are coming for you. You are next. All right. And, and just come to me. We're, we're hiring everywhere you are right now. And at the end, I'm going to ask you how do people get in touch with you. So your your email will be blowing up for the next six months. You, you have no I idea. So. If it's anything like your Twitter following, it will be highly engaged. <laughs> take me just real quick through buying Pivot Desk. Uh, how did that whole thing take place? Is that the first time you've actually outright bought another company? Yeah, uh, that was interesting. So I'm, I had long admired what they were doing. Uh, became pretty good friends actually with David who used to run it. And I guess they struggled to raise capital end of 2016. And I actually remember having lunch with David. Hope he doesn't get mad at me for telling this. And like, I thought they were like about to be done with raising capital and then they were going to go take over the world. And then like four months later, he's not like a good buddy, but like, you know, we catch up. I read that industrious bought pivot desk. And I was like, holy shit, what? I thought you guys were just raising. They said, yeah, unfortunately it didn't go how we wanted to go. And we had to do this like last second thing. I was like, David, where was my call, man? He said, oh, I should have thought about you, but it was all okay, whatever. So anyway, Industrious bought it and Industrious wasn't doing anything with it. So I called Jamie at Industrious and I said, hey, what are you guys doing with that? And he says, yeah, not much. And I said, can I have it? He says, you can't have it, but I'll sell it to you. And mm -hmm. that's how we bought Pivot Desk. How long did it take from that call to close? It was actually like Jamie and the team over there are, are great. Um, I actually had to convince them to do it because it arguably like wasn't worth their time to do it. They have much bigger fish to fry than like we have this thing that nobody's using and Jonathan wants it. So it took a little bit of cajoling. Um, like I chased him for a while, say, hey, Jamie, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. Uh, and finally said, fine, just stop emailing me. And then from that point to close, it's pretty easy. It's probably a month or so. Love it. All right. We've talked about Square Foot. I love what you're doing there. And you mentioned you. as we were chatting that you have a nighttime uh, hobby. And that's another way that we we connected. You have one of the, uh, you're one of the larger syndicates on AngelList and you have a rolling fund. Let's talk about that for a bit. Uh, you have a, you, you invest as well? Yes. 
uh, hobby and addiction. I don't know what we call it, but it keeps me uh, sane and smart. It makes me much better in my day job. Let's start with the uh, question that I asked you, which is just give a two-minute description of how a rolling fund works. Uh, so yeah, the rolling fund each quarter is its own essentially fund and the LPs who are investors in that fund and the investments that we do out of that quarter, um, that's all a thing. And then it gets put on the shelf at the end of the quarter and the next quarter starts new LP base, a lot of overlap quarter to quarter, but essentially it's a new fund uh, and new set of deals and then wash, rinse, repeat. And because of how they've structured AngelList, I'm able to uh, publicly solicit, not just me, but anybody who has one of these, like actually like, talking about it, like I'm fundraising and anybody who's interested in prop tech should call me. And I think that was actually one of the big novel things that that they brought to the table. Because, you know, historically, um, I was by a fund, um, you're not allowed to talk about it publicly. And then let's say you and I had a conversation next week after the fund closed and you said, oh, Jonathan, that's really cool what you're working on. Love to get involved. I'd say, oh, that's cool. Well, we'll be raising again in two years which is like the typical fun life cycle. Here I can do it constantly. So I might come to you and say, hey, I'm in for 100K and I want 20,000 20, of that to be allocated every quarter for the next five quarters. That, that's exactly right. And as an investor, I just have to put that into AngelList once and then AngelList takes care of that money getting allocated and, and takes care of you not having to do all this work to make sure it gets allocated. Yeah, that is exactly right. Yeah, so some of the LPs write that one check up front. I don't get to see any of it. Um, and then others fund their account every quarter. Makes no difference to me. Yep. And if let's just say you don't allocate all the capital that you have raised for that quarter, it my allocation just rolls into whatever you do the next quarter. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we had, we spent, I don't even feel like doing that, call it 95% of the capital in Q4 and that other 5% shows up in the bank account for this quarter. Yep. So there's it never burns a hole in my pocket. Do you not do the syndicates now? Because you also are one of the largest syndicators as well. Uh, no, we still do because it's actually it's great for me and it's great for the companies that we partner with. Uh, we actually get a ton of flexibility um, in that there are a bunch of deals that we do out of the fund where there's like not a nickel left of allocation. Like we literally squeeze into deals. In which case, it doesn't make sense to even talk about, you know, can we take more of it to the syndicate? There's others where, you know, we're first commitment into the deal, especially some of this pre-seed work that we do early stage uh, and say, great, we're going to write X dollars from the fund. And by the way, let me take it to the syndicate and let's see how much more we can do. And we did that in about uh, a quarter, fifth of the deals that we did last quarter. Um, so it's super flexible for the companies that we partner with, which is great. And the syndicate is, if you have extra allocation, you just go post a one-off investment that people can dive into. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And also for, you know, I still do some non-prop tech stuff um, and that we don't do out of the fund that goes to the syndicate no matter what. How, how many investments have you made? We did 20 deals out of the fund last quarter and probably all told another 30 through the syndicate since I started a couple of years ago. So you've done about 50? Yeah. That's incredible. What's your average check size? So the fund is small checks. So we have a thesis and a strategy that is high volume, low ticket size. I believe very strongly, uh, and it's backed up by evidence, not mine, but others, that you know the best performing funds over time will be uh, concentrated in winners. The worst performing funds will be concentrated in losers. 
And the best chance of having a very good performing fund is to be uh, pretty diversified. And that's what we wind up being. What's considered a good performing fund? Like 5x your money in 10 years, 3x? Three. I think if you're 3x, you're a top quartile performer. Got it. And do you want to do more of this as time goes by or just continue the same kind of trajectory that you're on? Uh, look, man, I love building square foot. We're just getting started, which is either sobering or exciting, as we say this kind of nine years after we started. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the prop tech nights and weekends fund uh, keeps me young and it like it's super symbiotic with what I do on my day job. Um, and getting to work with and help other companies who are earlier in their life helps me be better at my job today. So yeah, I'm not in a rush to... I like the balance we have now. Um, the fund, as the fund grows, and I'm not like, actively, I'm not like, I have no interest in getting like institutional capital. Um, but if the fund, because of your podcast, doubles in size this quarter, mm-hmm. it just means our average check doubles in size this quarter. Right. And we're still, the strategy still holds. Right. You don't have to do necessarily more work or find more companies. You just up the and check size. Instead of a dollar a company, we're now $2 a company. Yep. If you're looking for $2 of venture capital, Jonathan's got you covered. (laughs) Uh, All right. We're going to move just to some personal questions and then uh, we'll we'll bring her home. Do you have a childhood experience that you remember vividly that has shaped who you are today? An example might be, you know, we've had somebody say, you know, when my parents got a divorce, my life kind of changed or uh, being part of uh, Eagle Scouts and Cub Scouts made me who I am today. Like, is there something you did as a kid that kind of put you on the trajectory that you're on or something that you remember? Um, yeah, I guess like so uh, when I started high school, uh, I wasn't the most studious of, of kids. Um, and I was also like super involved in actually, like I played both for my uh, high school soccer team as well as like, a uh, uh, called them traveling teams. I don't know what they're called now. So I had like a bunch of extra because I was in a youth group too. And my studies, I wasn't doing like amazing in school. And this was, must've been like sophomore year. And my parents said, or somebody said like, where do you want to go to college? And I don't know why at the time I said, I want to go to Brown. I think maybe I just saw varsity blues and that's where he was going. Surely not why, but whatever reason. Uh, and my parents are like, you should probably go talk to the college counselor. And they're like, yeah, there's no way you can go to Brown with these grades. And I wasn't like a, a C or F student, but like it wasn't with the grades that you would need. And that was probably a bit of like, oh, wake up call is like probably the wrong word, but like it got my act together. Yeah. Um, stopped one of the soccer teams and I spent more time on my studies. Uh, and I was able to get into schools I wanted to get into. And um, it showed kind of, I guess I haven't tried to come up with a life lesson out of it, but it shows like, you know, balance is important and you have to like put your, put your time in. Yep. No, I love it. Do you have a, a book or whether personal or business, uh, that, that you has helped push you forward? Kind of like, uh, Danny Meyer's book, um, setting the table, uh, which is about like, he, he's like a big restaurateur and he's all about hospitality. And he's got some great like little things about like looking under the rocks because that's where you can learn a bunch of stuff. So like looking where you're not expecting to find answers to find answers, which is actually not what that means, but looking under the rocks, which is what he calls it like that. And then 
probably sound like a I don't know, dork or somebody who uses Twitter too much, but like I like a bunch of like the Stoic books. Um, but what's like Marcus Aurelius, which is like a bunch of stuff about like there's a lot of stuff that happens around you that you can't control, but you can control how you feel and react to it. Yep. Um, which I've not always been good at, but I've done some more of reading that last couple of years, and I think it's been pretty healthy for my mental health. Yep. There's probably a lot of people that could read that. Uh, book. A lot of people could read a lot of books they don't need. Yep. If you had a billboard on the busiest highway or intersection in New York City that you owned and you could put a message on that billboard for the world to see, what would you put on that billboard? Besides lease office in New York City. <laughs> um, work hard and play nice. I love it. All right. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you and Squarefoot and your uh, syndicate rolling fund? Uh, Squarefoot is squarefoot.com. Pivotdesk, pivotdesk.com. Uh, me, I'm super responsive on LinkedIn. Jonathan Wasserstrom is the same name there. Uh, Twitter, I started using a lot more, which has been fun. JM Wass. In my Twitter bio, there's a link to the rolling fund stuff or reach out to me on LinkedIn and happy to talk about that or the syndicate anytime. Awesome, man. Thank you uh, so much for taking some time to chat with me today. This was awesome conversation. Anytime. Much appreciated. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.